Living la vida loca, talking about a low carb diet. Uh -huh. Getting your body healthy, and ain't no doubt about it. Yeah, it's really about ketosis, a ketogenic life. Yeah, a real time indicator for ketosis called ketonics. It messes your breath for ketones. Are you burning fat? It's the first of its kind. All my ketonians, where you at? Hey, I'm just here to let you know. Wanna look and feel incredible. We living la vida low carb. Get your body healthy and live long. Hey, keep my fats high. And my carbs low, need my glucose down right now, pronto. Check my ketones, look at the stats, yo. With ketonics, now I'm in the burning fat zone. Ketonics, we burning fat, yeah, we own it, yeah, yeah. With ketonics, I'm burning fat and I'm on it, yeah, yeah. Living la vida low carb, I do this every day. If you wanna burn that fat, it ain't no other way, yeah. Go to ketonics.co. And for my international followers, it's ketonics.com. Are you looking for macadamia and almond nut butter and convenient on-the-go closable nut butter pouches? Then let me introduce you to Superfat. They are a certified keto and paleo line of macadamia and almond-based nut butters. They come in pouches with five different flavors, including nitro coffee MCT, MCT probiotic, and cacao coconut. Each pouch contains 50% more than other nut butter pouches, and they actually taste great. Healthy plant-based fats found in Superfat support sustained levels of energy, cognition, and mental clarity. Macadamia nuts are found in all flavors and are scientifically proven to help speed up fat metabolism. This high-density energy source will give you a boost whenever you need it. Again, it's called Superfat. Check them out at superfat.com and be sure to use the coupon code JIMMY at checkout to get 20% off of your order. Superfat. Uh, living la vida low carb. This show is changing lives. We talking about your diet, trying to get you feeling right. Cut up the avocados, fry some eggs. Time to explore the longest running health podcast, hosted by Jimmy Moore. Time to give up the crappy garbage. We're getting into ketosis. Every day is a new step to your goal. Yeah, you're getting closer. Motivated and focused. Don't stop, just go. Time to get inspiration from the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Hey, the Living Low Carb Show. Welcome back to the Living La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore and with Jimmy Moore and with Jimmy Moore and with Jimmy Moore. Coming up, Good Calories, Bad Calories author Gary Tobbs. And welcome back to the Live and La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore, episode 139. And today, have we got a show for you, as they say. I have been wanting to interview Gary Tobbs for a very long time, and recently I met up with him at an obesity conference in Phoenix, Arizona, the uh, American Society of Bariatric Physicians and Nutrition and Metabolism Society um, conference, had him there, and he did two lectures uh, while he was there on the wonderful concepts that he's been researching for many years for his book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, and you're going to hear a lot from uh, this man who has 
has a lot to say. He he went back through the archives, so to speak, and found all the evidence that shows that the high-fat, low-carb diet is pretty much the way we were meant to eat. And I think you're really going to enjoy all that he has to say in this amazing uh, interview. He is a really neat guy. And I was very honored and privileged to be able to speak to him um, about his book and, and about what's going on in his life um, as he helps to promote this message of uh, living la vida low carb. So now let's get into part one of my interview with Gary Tobbs. Welcome back to the Living La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore, and today we have a, a very special guest with us. He is here uh, at the Phoenix, Arizona uh, Nutrition and Metabolism Symposium. He was one of the uh, keynote speakers that was here. He is Gary Tobbs, author of the book that I've been talking about for months, Good Calories, Bad Calories. Welcome, Gary. Welcome, Jimmy. Thank you for having me. And it's uh, it's so awesome to see you at an event like this where a lot of uh, uh, bariatric physicians are in attendance. Um, tell us a little bit about how your message of carbohydrates being at the root cause of obesity has gone over with some of the people uh, that you talk to here. Well, it's, it's interesting because this is a receptive audience. They mm-hmm. deal with obesity. They deal with obese patients. They try to slim people down. And a lot of them, I've been told, have been using low-carb. Like a great proportion of these people have been using low-carb even through the low-fat era. Right. And uh, it was it actually was fascinating. It was nice to not to have to try to sort of, you know, force my message down anyone's throat. Just right. have people sitting in the audience who wanted to hear what you want, had to say, were mm-hmm. open-minded, maybe even a little biased in your favor. Sure. Um, I was saying I just came out of a... Speaking at a childhood obesity seminar at USC the other day where I felt the assembled experts wanted little or nothing to do with what I was telling. Mm. You know, and that's far- typical of the response that you've been getting? or Well, there's this theory that obesity and overweight is a very complex problem. You know, yeah. All these people, they study genomics and molecular biology and molecules like leptin and ghrelin and NPY right. and adenopinectin and you know uh, uh, singling molecules and the pathways of ghrelin that, and so what they're studying is very complex mm-hmm. and they make their career studying it and the idea that something as simple as the effect of carbohydrates on insulin could be the di- environmental cause of obesity for most you know a large percentage of the population is so simple that it must be wrong. Right, that's right. What I and there's it's, there's no place for it in their universe because their universe is about studying these molecules. Hmm. It's not about finding the environmental cause of obesity. Interesting. And yeah, I this seminar was a very this is much this is a much friendlier crowd. Oh yeah, <laughs> much more. Uh, you know. So, so you, you you feel like a lot of the people that um, heard you this weekend heard you for maybe the second or third or fourth time. Maybe they've seen your your Berkeley telecast on the web, and you know maybe uh, uh, it's just reinforcing what you've already been saying for months. Yeah, I think about a quarter of the audience had seen these mm-hmm. lectures on the web. The other three quarter were the bariatric physicians who right. were getting it fresh. A lot of them had read the book. A right. lot of them were big fans of the book. Um, you know, it's. Uh, it's an interesting problem. As I was saying, the closer you are to obesity, the mm-hmm. more amenable you are to the idea that it's carbohydrates are the problem. Right. If you're sitting in an academic laboratory studying rats, mm-hmm. you know, 
all calories are the same. Right. And then rats, a lot of rats get fat, and you add fat to their diets, they get fat. So this makes them think, you know, rats must be the There's ideal. A correlation, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it's an interesting experience. Now, you, you mentioned during your talk that you sent a complimentary copy, or, or in an interview yeah. or somewhere, that you sent a complimentary copy of your book to all the, uh, I guess, the congressional uh, leaders that deal with nutrition and health and trying to basically get them to uh, open up a dialogue right. about this. Uh, how'd that go? Well, that's what I, we sent out uh, about 150, 160 copies of the book. We sent them to the, the researchers I interviewed over the years and the administrators who I thought were open-minded and intelligent. Um, and then we sent them to everyone at NIH who funded any kind of research program on hmm. obesity. And there's about 25 different little offices at NIH. Right. Um, we sent them to the congressional staffers on the Senate Nutrition Committee and the congressmen. We sent, I Googled obesity task forces. So any foundation, any charitable institution that had an obesity task force that was funding obesity, we sent them to these people. Right. I heard back from four people. Four out of 160? Out of 160. (laughs) Two of them thanked me for sending them the book. Mm -hmm. And two of them actually said they read the book and thanked Mm. me. The two who said they thanked me never got back to me to say they read it. Right. Um, You know, these are busy people. Sure. Uh, That's the thing. We live in a world where we're very tuned in to, you know, my original New York Times Magazine article. The book was a big deal to us. Right. To these people, they just get this book in the mail. They know nothing about it. It's hard to imagine. Again, even at this childhood obesity mm-hmm. seminar, a lot of these people didn't know who I was or what the book was. Right. You would think, because we live in this low-carb universe, that everyone is paying attention to right. books that are written on obesity. It's sure. just not the case. Right. So I don't hold it against them. Uh, you know, as far as I can tell, if they read it, they didn't get back mm-hmm. to me. If they got back to me, you know. But it's it's it was dismaying. And and in their defense, it's yeah. a it's a huge book. I mean, not many book. times do you pick up a book that's yeah. 450, 500 pages of information, and plus another 150 pages of references. Well, that's what a lot of like so. several of the people told me. I you know I got your book. It's on my nightstand. Yeah. it's on my bed table. I mean, it's a good doorstop. I mean, yeah, it's <laughs> you know they're planning on reading yeah, it. Yeah. All planning. I I have yeah. about 50 books I'm planning on reading that sure. I've already bought. Yeah. Um, I've got more books that I'm planning on reading than I've actually read in my life. Mm-hmm. So, and it's a problem. The problem is if it had been a short book, they right. might have read it, but it wouldn't have convinced them. True. So, and that was the balance that I was trying to, to the tightrope I was trying to walk when I wrote the book. Well, and to that end, Gary, um, I know a lot of my readers have asked, why doesn't he release a more abridged version um, of the book that's more palatable for the consumer? Because you know, with all due respect, I know you wrote the book for professionals. You wanted them to read it. You wanted it to trickle down to the patient. But we all know that the patient is the one that really can drive the grassroots of it, can drive the doctors to change if there's enough people that are changed by it. So is there uh, any uh, plans in the works? I know you said the, the paperback version, which is coming out this fall, is going to be a little more abridged and maybe no, no, a little the, more concise. There's a paperback version coming out this fall that's just... Straight book with oh okay uh, oh it's the mass market one that you were talking yeah about. my editors have talked about <clears throat> publishing a mass market version mm-hmm. that's you know the, the abridged 
easier to read, maybe right. without all the references. Uh, I don't know if they're going to do it or not. It'll mm. probably depend on how the paperback does. Right, right. I've talked to my editors. I want to take my lecture and turn it into a book. I think mm. one of the things that got lost here was this idea of a paradigm shift in how we think about overweight. You know, going from a disorder of overeating to a disorder of fat metabolism, right. a disorder of positive energy balance to a disorder of, you know, basically carbohydrates and insulin. Because the book's so big, even the reviewers who read it carefully and reviewed it thoughtfully, mm -hmm. by the time they got to the, what I consider the most important message, right. had already talked about cholesterol and fiber and right. hypertension and the carbohydrates versus fat. So. I would like to take the lecture, which just attacks the positive energy balance mm -hmm. concept, the idea that we get fat because we overeat, and that somehow we could get thin again if we move more and eat less. Mm -hmm. I want to attack that directly in a nice, short, mm -hmm. easy-to-read book that makes the arguments, just as my lecture does, talks about you know the Pima Indians and the... You know, the right. um, I would start writing that book today if my editor and my agent thought I should. Yeah. The editors, and because it's not new material, I feel they kind of own it as much as I sure. do. Um, they want to see how they pay. They don't want to have a book come out to compete. I don't want to, they don't want me competing with myself sure. in the marketplace. So they're not, neither one of them say no to this book, but they say, let's just wait a year or two mm -hmm. until the paperback plays out. They don't see any <laughs> rush. Like we're here kind of in the trenches saying, let's get this war going. Yeah. They're out there living their lives, sure. you know, fairly nice lives, and they want to let the paperback come out. Right. You know, see what happens. If it does well, then, um, like I said, I want to write this book because I want to confront, I want to make the reviewers and the researchers confront the positive energy balance nonsense head on. And your lecture certainly makes that argument yeah. very compelling. It, I would think so, and that's why I think the book, right. although, I, again, watching the researchers at um, USC, for instance, try to process it. They seem to find it less compelling than, hmm. than we do. Well, as you said in your lecture, because it goes against all their orthodox that they've yeah. always believed, they've always taught. And so it, at some point, I mean, something's got to give. Um, you're going to see people like me, for example, who have been successful on going against everything that's ever yeah. been taught. Uh, and there's going to be an uprising. And I think the fear, and this is just my own theory, but the fear is that if we finally acknowledge, oh, yeah, you know, uh, restricted carbohydrate diets uh, do work and help right. people improve their health and lose weight, class action lawsuits might ensue. I mean, well, you're looking at some serious things. things is, you know, it's, um, it's an interesting phenomenon. If, you, if a government admitted they'd been giving the wrong advice yeah. for 40 years... So basically, increasing people's weights, increasing mm -hmm. risks of heart disease. What actually happens? You know, what's the yeah. down and obesity reparations? Yeah, I don't I mean. know. It's, it's it's an odd position to be in. Yeah. This is when people ask me about what I think about banning trans fats, and I yeah. think the trans fat evidence is te terrible. So, but and then it's like I actually think sugar is probably a large proportion of the problem. Mm -hmm. I don't think they should ban sugar anymore, I don't think they should ban cigarettes, but right. I think people should know that cigarettes cause lung cancer, I right. think they should know that sugar makes them fat and probably gives them heart disease and maybe these other diseases, but once you ban trans fats, and then you find out that sugar is worse, mm -hmm. now you've started a precedent. precedent so what, now are we going to, yeah. you know, this, 
and my mayor of New York going to try and ban sugar in New York right, restaurants? Right. You know, I don't want to live in that world, but I would like to live in a world where the nutritionists and right. the government would at least do the necessary science to say sugar is bad for you, and if That's you right. eat it, you better know it's bad for you. That's right. It's, it's a uh, very complicated, the, the downstream manifestations of this, uh, this stuff. Right. Now, you live in New York City, so you've seen the whole trans fat ban there, and it's, it's definitely sweeping the nation right now. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that they don't give that same credence to the sh sugar. Well, I think sugar has a much better lobby. I think the <laughs> yeah. trans fat, trans fat stuff, lobby. <laughs> I think the trans fat stuff took the trans fat industry by surprise. Yes. Yeah. I don't know who the trans fat industry yeah, is, is, but yeah. whoever it is, it took them by surprise. Sugar's been fighting this battle for 150 years. Yeah. Those guys are much better at it. That's my yeah. feeling. Yeah, they're slicker at it and definitely have the money behind it. So, Well, let's get into a few questions. I uh, solicited questions from my listeners who have uh, mostly read your book, very enthusiastic about it. A few of them wanted to play devil's advocate with you. So I thought, let's throw some of those questions at you and see what you have to say. One of the uh, readers, um, his name is Peter. And Peter wanted to know, he's never been a vegetarian, but he's curious why they tend to be, in his assertion, thinner than the rest of us on the average, though they mostly eat a very high-carb diet. So he suspects, Peter suspects, that they would be fatter than the rest of us based on what he's read in your book. Since carbs drive insulin, drives fat storage, as you keep saying over and over in your lectures and in your books. So do you have a theory as to why vegetarians are thinner? Well, I, I don't know if vegetarians are thinner, but I'm going to assume for the sake of argument okay. that they are. I mean, the world is certainly full of fat vegetarians. Sure. Actually, one woman who came up to me after my USC talk was uh, Indian, uh, Indian, Indian, Asian Indian. Right. And she was talking about the high rates of obesity and diabetes and vegetarians in India. Um, that said, I think in general, and now I'm going to be making assumptions, I think in general vegetarians probably don't eat as much processed food, so they don't probably don't get as much sugars and right. refined carbs. So even though what they're eating are carbohydrates, um, if they're low glycemic index carbs, if they're not loading up on sugar, then you could explain their leanness because the quality of the carbohydrates they're consuming are still better than the quality that the rest of us are consuming. Mm -hmm. The problem with these kinds of associations is sifting out that kind of, you know, is it, um, you know, for instance, there's a famous study on Seventh-day Adventists and the fellow who wrote the study, who was a Seventh-day Adventist, he, he did the study, wrote a book on it, I forget his name, but I interviewed him because I got his book. Because the Seventh-day Adventists they had lower cancer rates, they had higher longevity, and in the book he says nothing about sugar. Hmm. Now he actually assessed in his nutritional assessment like how much donuts they ate versus mm -hmm. a control group and they ate less donuts. So they were eating a healthier diet but he never looked at sugar. They were eating less sugar. That could explain all the effect they've seen. Sure. The only way to get around this is to do a clinical control trial. We take two groups of equal p, you know, two group, one group of of homogenous, you know, relatively homogenous populations, split them into two groups and give them two different diets. Right. Then you have a much better idea if you see a differential health effect, what caused it. When you look at these kind of associations, you don't know what else they're doing. And my guess is that even though they're eating you know, a high-carb diet, it's a low-glycemic index, low-fructose diet. Right, right. So that could be moderating considerably the effect of carbs. If we looked at their insulin levels, we would find their insulin levels are still relatively low. Right. Although, like I said, the counterexample is that every time I give these talks, I hear from vegetarians who are overweight, they say, well, what can I do? <laughs> oh, yeah, you know? yeah. 
So, so even still, a few of them do still deal with that because of the carbohydrates that are in Certainly a lot of them do. They they may be leaner in general. They are supposedly have lower rates of cancer. Right. But one of the interesting comparisons that was, you know, one of the things that drove the idea that meat caused cancer was the lower rates of cancer among Seventh-day Adventists. Mm -hmm. But then when researchers studied Mormons among the highest cancer, uh, highest meat consumers in the country, they also had low rates of cancer. Hmm. So that's when you ask, what else are we missing? Right. You know, what are we not studying that could explain the effect? Right. What's the missing link? Yeah. Uh, well, I have another question for you, this time from Lynn. Lynn wanted to know, why was your book renamed The Diet Delusion? And I've talked to you about this before for the UK yeah. audience. And why was it released later than Good Calories, Bad Calories? Uh, was this to edit it to British spelling? <laughs> More importantly, why has it not gotten any press coverage over here, The Diet Delusion, and have you promoted it at all in the UK? Now, I know the answers to all these, but I want to yeah. have um, you share them. <laughs> the editors in the UK and the editors in the US both had their ideas of what the title was mm. going to be. The, the, for whatever reasons, the UK uh, editors did not like good calories, bad calories. I am not a great fan of good calories, bad calories. Well, and originally it was supposed to be, what if it's all been a big fat no, lie? No, they always or? liked, what if it's all been a big fat lie. Okay. I said, I, I'm not, I don't want to call it that, because I think there's a lot of delusion out there, mm-hmm. a lot of terrible science, but there's very little out-and-out out deceit. And one of the complaints that people had against researchers had against my New York Times magazine story was the title. Right. They didn't like being accused of being liars. They could deal with being right. accused of being bad scientists, but liars. So, And I said, look, I'm, I write this whole book. To, I'm being, trying to be as rigidly intellectually honest as I can be mm-hmm. and as rigorous about it as I can be, and then I can't just go throw it out the window for the title. Right. Being objective. Yeah, so I, I said I don't. I refuse to let it be called. What if it's going to be a big fat lie? What if it's all big fat lie? They came up with diet delusion. You know, I could live with that. Sure. Um, the uh, why it came out three months later that's just the publishing industry sometimes right. they come out at the same time they wanted to bring it out in January which mm-hmm. is diet season sure um, I think it's safe to say it did poorly in England yeah I, I haven't mean, heard anything I about tell, diet dilution <laughs> um, I you know there was interest in from newspapers and magazines yeah. prior to the book coming out. A few articles came out. It never did. Maybe the British don't buy books on Amazon. I don't know, but the well, Amazon number was always terrible. I think it confused a lot of people because the British, they read American press, yeah. at least a lot of my readers do that are that are in Great Britain, and they were looking for good calories, bad calories, it's and possible, it never came out. <laughs> they, they still bought Diet Delusion. Yeah. They were in once they, you know. It's, yeah, it's, once they figured out what um, it was. A few of the things I read suggested that they, people just didn't know what this book was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were a few pre-publication blurbs that there, there would be five diet books and then yeah. my book, and right. these are the upcoming diet books for the season, and then they would describe my book as diet delusion, as, you know, taking on the diet industry as mm-hmm. opposed to... so. Um, and once the book was published, I never heard another word from the publishers. I don't know what they were doing. They actually spent a lot of money yeah. for the book. So I actually heard from your UK uh, pr- promoter like yeah. months beforehand. Oh, help us promote it. And then I never heard from them. So I yeah, don't know so what happened. I don't know what happened. And it's funny. It's coming out, I think, this month in Australia. Yeah. And maybe it'll do better there. I've Is it got, called Diet Delusion or Good yeah, Calories? Diet, no, Diet Delusion in Australia. I guess okay. since they need the OUs, you know, so yeah, yeah. Like, retranslate the spelling. Um 
I don't know why it did so poorly. I was surprised. I would have thought a slightly more literate audience. The right. book would have done well. Certainly, they have obesity problems. And they're a little more open to low-carb in those countries. Um, I know, for example, in Sweden, yeah. you know, the government just you know passed these dietary uh, recommendations that said, you know, hey, low-carbohydrate diet is just as effective as low-fat. So they're doing it alongside each other. So, I mean, you well, would it's think... Also, it's, it sort of was a British yeah. concept to begin with. True. Um, certainly, the publishers were excited by the book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this, the publishing industry is mystery. Nobody understands it. I, I, it's funny. I still I had hoped to get a lot of translations, and we really the only rights we've sold so far are the Polish rights. Hmm. I got an email from my editor one day that said, you know, Poland, eighteen hundred dollars, and I thought it said Portland. Yeah. So I called him up and I said, "What is they're translating it into Oregonian?" And he said, "It's Poland, you idiot." Um, the uh, it's interesting. Apparently, especially in the in the European Union, there are regulations for translators. So, a book five hundred pages long, over one hundred fifty thousand words. Basically, yeah. they have to pay the translators for like six months of their life or yeah. something. So, if we do an abridged version, and several of the, the Germans and the Japanese, there have been some suggestions that kind of, do we you mind if we abridge it? Right. So, they, and I'm happy. I just want to get this get book out there. Out there. Um, but so far, it's you know it's been a learning experience. Publishing is always a learning experience. Oh, yeah. You must have learned that when you did your book. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you take the good and you just try not to get too discouraged by the things you had hoped would happen and just right. don't. You, fo- you focus on the message, yeah. and that's the point of writing a book. Yeah. Is you want to get a message out there that you hope will resonate with people. Good news, low-carb, ketogenic, real food fans. A real good foods company is now in all U.S. Walmart stores. They have enchiladas, poppers, cauliflower crust pizzas, mini pizza bites, and the chicken crust pizzas in 3,500 Walmart stores. Real Good Foods pizzas are grain-free, gluten-free, and of course, low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic. This is real food, and now it's available at your local Walmart. Get exclusive offers from Real Good Foods by texting RGF to 474747. And be sure to visit realgoodfoods.com to learn more about Real Good Foods' ketogenic line of products. Real Good Foods. Now, you said you didn't like the title, Good Calories, Bad Calories. I'm looking at the book right now. It's got a big old piece of toast on it with butter. Now, what what was that all about? I couldn't, you know, in an ideal world, okay, I'm a science wonk. Mm-hmm. In an ideal world, I'd have called this book The Alternative Hypothesis. Okay. Okay? And I believe that would probably, that would catch on. It was good, yeah. You know, that it would sound catchy. And even though my publisher wasn't going to go for book with the word hypothesis in right. the title. So... <laughs> Too sciencey, okay. So we, my editor and I, two, three years of emails going back and forth. How about this? How about that? Finally, as we were getting close to publication, we both decided we could live with the title, the quality of calories. Mm-hmm. It's got a nice sort of Shakespearean ring to it. Sure. You know, the quality of mercy. The quality. Sure, sure. It's and it, I liked it because it's not about the quantity; it's the quality. So it's a sort right. of the beginning to the title was implicit. He could live with it. I could live with it. They, somebody at random at Knopf, one of the copy editors, said, quality of calories, that's just good calories, bad calories. And suddenly they loved it. Loved that title. And I thought it sounded like a diet book. Yeah. 
And they argued that, well, first of all, I think they wanted it to sound like a dive yeah, book. Yeah. And they said, you know, this is Knopf, we're the most respected, you know, elegant publisher out there. It will not look like a diet book, which it doesn't. It, no. will, not, it will not be treated like a diet book, which it kind of has been. <clears throat> I had a big fight with my editor, and then I, I actually won the fight. And he was very angry at me, but I, was, I did not spend five years of my life. I am a science wonk. I'm a, you know, pompous kind of intellectual New Yorker. Um, I don't want to be the author of Good Calories, Bad Calories, and... Then my wife that night goes out to dinner with some of her friends in the publishing industry and she tells them about this fight because she's worried that I have alienated my publishing company mm -hmm. to the point that they're not going to push the book. Right. And she tells them about the fight and one of the women at the dinner is a publisher of a very well-known woman's magazine, editor, and she goes, good calories, bad calories, but that's a wonderful title. And she gives the same argument that my editor did. You know, yeah. it's Knopf. Nobody will see it as a diet book. It's a... <laughs> So my wife actually called me from the dinner to tell me this verbatim. I called my agent and I said, am I wrong about this good calories, bad calories thing? Should I have let Knopf? And my agent said, well, my agent will support me, right. even if she disagrees with me, which is a great agent. It's the only time in 20 years I ever called her at home at night. And she said, mm. yeah, I think you might be wrong. And the next day I called my editor and I said, look, I still don't like good calories, bad calories. But I acknowledge that the odds that I'm right about this are worse than the odds that I'm wrong. <laughs> and so he, they were delighted and they loved it. And right. you know, the idea nowadays with publishing is you're not trying to sell the book to the public. You're trying to sell it to like three people at right. Borders, Barnes & Noble, That's right. Amazon. And if those people like the title, yeah. then, in. you know, so, yeah. and I, I mean, I've learned to... I have trouble saying it, but I like the way it looks. Oh, it's a beautiful book. Yeah, and I like GCBC. Yeah, GCBC is yeah, a nice little acronym now. You, bought, you have your own uh, acronym now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> GT uh, wrote GCBC. <laughs> well, let's get to another question. Uh, someone else asked, do you believe there is a particular limit of carbs where calories do matter? So, for example, if one stays at 20 carb calories... Uh, that don't matter. However, if one eats 50 carb calories, it matters a tiny bit, and if he eats 80, a bit more, and so on and so forth. So by the time you get to, say, for example, 200 carb calories, uh, it starts mattering hugely since one is eating carbage, as I call it, uh, even if it is whole grain garbage. Um, I got to go with the underlying biochemistry here. Okay. If insulin regulates fat deposition, and you need this alpha glycerol phosphate molecule I talk about to fix fat in the fat tissue. Then it's all about the carbs and the insulin. Mm. And everything else is pretty much superfluous. So, you know, it's the kind of thing that can be studied scientifically and certainly has not been. But actually, here's a way that calories could matter. So I'm going to give you a counterexample. I okay. worry that most, many people who try this diet try to make it calorie restricted. So they try to cut carbs and calories, right. and I wonder if it works better. You know, if your body is, if you're semi-starving your cells, they're going to hang on to the fat tissue conceivably, whereas if there's plenty of nutrients floating around, they're going to let the fat out. Right. I have no idea. You know, these are the kinds of things, if I ran, if I was czar of the NIH, this is what I would put money to studying, and I could design you the studies that would do it. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but no, so I don't think, I think it's almost exclusively, you know, with the, the all intents and purposes about the, the level of carbohydrates, not the total calories. Hmm. And that's what I would get from the underlying, you know, biochemistry and hormonal regulation of the fat tissue. Sure. So, and, and to kind of piggyback on top of that um, question, John had a question about the research uh, that you have found that makes any distinction between simple carbs like sugar and white flour, etc., and complex carbs, carbs like whole grains in terms of their effect on insulin metabolic syndrome. You kind of just answered that question. Um, well, I think, you know, I, this is why I use the phrase over and over in the book, easily digestible carbohydrates. The simple and complex carbs gets confusing because... Yeah. And I say, said this in the lecture today that the, the meaning has changed in 30 years. It used to be that a simple carb was a sugar and a complex carb was a starch. Right. And now a simple carb is a starch and a complex carb is something that has fiber and, right. you know, a vegetable, basically. Right. Um, and this less slower you di the more longer it takes you to digest the carbohydrates, the slower the sort of trickle of carbs into your bloodstream, probably the slower less the insulin response. So it's the, the key factor is how quickly you can digest it, how how quickly the carbs make it into your bloodstream and force an insulin response. That's to me would be the key factor, that and the fructose content. You're listening to Gary Tobbs, the author of Good Calories, Bad Calories, and I wanted to uh, talk about the impact that your book has made on so many of my readers and listeners. I get emails every single day, and I forwarded a few of them to you, people saying, oh my gosh, I had no idea, and I'm thinking, where have these people been? You know, I mean, this information is not new that you've introduced. All you've done is packaged it and, and kind of remarketed it, so to speak, to the public. Um, but you've made a huge impact on so many people, and, and even a, a, a famous person, you know, on CNN. We saw him uh, on the Larry King show where uh, Dr. Weil came on there, Andrew Weil, and uh, and pretty much, as Joy Behar said, gave you a valentine uh, you know, with tomorrow, that appearance. by the way, I go from here to Andrew Weil's National Health Conference, That's right, right, which is Phoenix. also in Phoenix. Yeah. So I just go from one Hilton Resort to another yeah. Hilton Resort. <laughs> You're living such a terrible life right now. <laughs> well, you know, there's laundry issues yeah. involved. How do you get your shirt? Which one do you have your shirt cleaned at? So Which one stinks the least? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, that's just an amazing turnaround. I mean, he has been a huge vegetarian uh, proponent for many years and uh, well, has dealt with obesity for many years. What's interesting is he, if you read his one of his books, probably his first book, he talks about going on the Atkins diet yeah. when he was younger. And he lost weight, but yeah. it bored him. Yeah. You know, and it was, it, I found it fascinating because I've heard uh, other, there's a fellow at, uh, I think, Brown who wrote a book called Big Fat Lies. Yeah. Who said the same thing. You know, I went on this diet, I, I lost weight, but I was bored. Mm. But it's, you know, again, it's, it's like saying I quit smoking, I reduced my risk of lung cancer, but I was bored, so I went back to smoking. <laughs> right. You know, it's, right. they never asked the question. If I lost weight so easily, maybe it's because the carbohydrates were making me fat. Right. And I found that fascinating with Wild. And now, yeah, he definitely um, seems to have shifted his stance a bit. But he's, sure. he's, it'll be interesting. I'll get to meet him for the first time. Well, and it's interesting. He asked you to be a part of his, yeah. his program because yeah. probably before you came out with your book, he wouldn't have even given you the time of the day. And so it, it's just that that just 
talks to the impact that your book is making. I, I think you, you should be very proud that it is doing what you were hoping it would do in terms of influencing, you know, and you mentioned this in your talk today, the way we're going to get the changes to happen right. is to get key people like Dr. Andrew Wilder, Dean Ornish, if yeah. he ever, you know, no, wakes up. But we'll, we'll talk about Ornish in a second. <laughs> in fact, let's get into Ornish right now. Uh, I recently interviewed him. Yeah. And when I brought up your name, it was as if the tone and tenor of everything I had said just immediately just switched. And it's, why is there such vitriol for Gary Tobbs and Dean Ornish's body? I mean, it just, it was so obvious. And his his thing um, about you is that you're just a journalist. Yeah. You're not an actual scientist who is doing the research. And he's proven that heart disease can be overturned and reversed on his diet. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, you know, why do you think there's such vitriol from him about you? I mean, uh, and I asked him if he read your book. And he said, well, it's here on my desk. And that doesn't answer that you read the book. <laughs> well, I... Dr. Ornish has a problem, which is that if what I'm saying is true, he's been advocating a fairly unhealthy diet for quite mm. some time. Um, you know, I ran into Dean for the first time after I did my um, New York Times Magazine right. story, and I was actually I was doing a, a radio show in Washington, uh, an NPR show, very good show, and yeah. Dean was called in, so, and basically wow. was like, "Oh my God, I'm getting ambushed." And, <laughs> You know, and I just don't consider his research very compelling. I find his several studies he's done, you know, can be interpreted in any number of ways. He he puts people you know, on exercise programs. He's got them doing yoga and stress relaxation. It's the same thing we said about the vegetarians. If you put someone on a low-fat diet, but you take all the sugar out of the diet, right, and then you see some benefit, you don't know if it was because they're eating less fat or because they're eating no sugar, right, and then maybe they'd had more benefit if they're eating more fat and no sugar, right. You know, you just don't know. So, you know, I think um, I think the most one easy target for him, because for instance, he's run into you know there are researchers who disagree with him intensely, like uh, you know the people who study small dense LDL, like Dr. Kraus. We had one of his former colleagues speaking today at the conference, right. Ron Kraus from Berkeley, or Gerald Reven with Syndrome X. Any of these disorders, people who work with metabolic syndrome, which is you know you. you lower people's fat content that low and you raise their carbohydrate content, you're going to make this atherogenic dyslipidemia. But if you if he attacks, you know, those people are, he would perceive as their equals. Yeah. If they are scientists, they do research, and they also have some establishment position, some influence. You don't want to anger those people. Right. But you can go after a journalist for being just a journalist, sure. and you don't really have to worry about it. And in truth, when we first interact on this radio program, I said, you're just a physician. I don't want to listen. You know. So I dissed him, and now yeah. he's going to diss me back. Uh, in between, we're on the Charlie Rose show right. together. And, and Mehmet Oz was the moderator on Mehmet that Oz one. Was, yeah. yeah. And, you know... I... We have our difference. Sure. And again, if I'm right, then he's, right. you know, he's wrong. Goes and back to the lawsuit thing again. Yeah. And also, <laughs> he's turned this, his, his diet into a real career. I mean, yeah. he's become a very influential man. Sure. He's um, on a lot of boards. He's on a lot of boards. He gets, you know, it's so it's, you, you can't afford to have been wrong. Yeah. Once you get to that position. It's a day. So I, I represent a threat in that way. And, sure. um, you know, I, 
It's funny, at one point he actually offered to read the book in drafts. And I thanked him very kindly for the offer and mm -hmm. told him I'd think about it and yeah. let it go. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he's an interesting guy. And he's in an interesting position because he's been pushing this dramatic diet for so long. Sure. And if it makes heart disease worse rather than better, um, you know, he's, he's got a problem. He doesn't, he doesn't benefit from me being right. And certainly doesn't benefit from my existence in the universe. No. <laughs> well, his new angle with uh, his book, The Spectrum, that I, I read, and then that was the basis of our interview, is supposedly to move away from the low-fat versus low-carb diet wars that he's grown tired of. Right, because right. we all know that, we all agree that refined carbohydrates, blah, blah, blah. And, and yet, where does he put refined carbohydrates? Right smack dab in the middle. Not the least healthy. Not the most healthy, but in the middle of the road and his justification for that is well if you eat it with fiber it lessens the impact of those carbohydrates well that's how the whole fiber theory came about right. I mean this is what I talk about in the book and it's a lovely story because you have this guy Peter Cleave who looks at the evidence of you know uh, chronic diseases of civilization heart disease diabetes gout arthritis you know peptic ulcer and in various hospitals around the world and he sends out surveys and questionnaires and he says look you add sugar and flour to it any diet any baseline diet you get obesity diabetes heart disease ulcers cancers blah mm -hmm. blah blah so sugar and flour are the problem that's why he called it the saccharine disease and then along comes this guy, Dennis Burkett, and Burkett is already famous for having discovered something called Burkitt's lymphoma. And Sir Richard Dahl, who's the most famous British epidemiologist, introduced Burkett to Cleve. Burkett reads Cleve's book, decides Cleve is brilliant, and then says, maybe it's not the addition of sugar and flour. Maybe it's the subtraction of the fiber in the refining process. So I'm going to blame it on the absence of fiber instead of the presence of sugar and flour. The exact same data, for the most part, the exact same observations, but now you've twisted it. And the reason it caught on is because you could tell people eat less fat and more fiber. Hmm. It's hard to tell people to eat less fat and less carbohydrates. Right. So one sort of... And this fiber thing is still with us. So you can mitigate the effect of sugar and flour if you eat it in the presence of fiber or with, you know. But if you just don't eat it at all, you don't have to mitigate the effect. Right, right. You know, it's sort of the simplest <laughs> take possible the pill and you don't yeah, get yeah, sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's their way of getting around it. You know, fiber is the way of getting around saying, look, the problem is sugar and fiber and easily digestible starches, you know. Instead, the problem is we don't need enough fiber. The only thing fiber cures is constipation. Mm. And see, look at the data. That's the only thing it takes care of. It has no effect on any other. Well, and on a low-carb diet, a lot of people experience that. So it yeah. can be a beneficial, especially early on uh, in the diet. Now, before we go, I wanted to ask you, I know at the end of your book, you were making a uh, call for more of these studies uh, to come out about low-carbohydrate diets so that we can in the madness of all just the discussion of it, okay, we can talk them to our blue in the face till kingdom come, but until we actually do the studies, and you're advocating doing them like right now, let's start them now so that, you know, by the time, you know, diabetes is going to get much worse, yeah. obesity is going to get much worse before it gets better, we have to start now. So what can the average uh, person out there, the listeners that are listening today, 
do? I mean, what would you advocate that they do? Should they write their congressmen? Should they, you know, write to the NIH and the ADA and all these different organizations? How can we pull all of our grassroots resources together and make the changes that Gary Tobbs writes about in his book? Well, writing a congressman would be a very great thing. I mean, if Congress got a million letters tomorrow saying, look, there's this problem out there and we got to solve it. we got this obesity epidemic, we have this diabetes epidemic, we've been hearing the same story for 30, 40 years, maybe that story's wrong, let's hold some hearings. Yeah, yeah. You know, let's talk to the NIA, let's, you know, that, that would make a difference. I mean, um, you know, as I say, I mean, get this book, give it, if you have a copy you've already read, give it to your physician. Yeah. Um, you know, if you know anyone influential, I do that. I mean, I interviewed a Nobel Prize winner the other day for a story on, on a molecular biology issue for a different magazine, but I got him on the phone. At the end, I got him talking about obesity, mm-hmm. and I said, look, can I just send you my book? Yeah. You know, I felt like a supplicant when I'm supposed to be a reporter, but yeah. I said, you know, if I can get this guy, and I said, if you don't have time to give it to one of your postdocs. Okay, the argument I'm making is simple. It's almost assuredly legitimate enough to be studied. There's a major problem. I need people like you to take it seriously because I know the people in the obesity field are not going to do it. You know, so if you know anyone influential, anyone, if your doctor knows anyone who's a congressman or, you know, it's on some level we got to get, you have to get the medical establishment to face the problem and the conflict and the existence of this alternative hypothesis and deal with it. Right. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, since I wrote the book, I now have thought of studies that we should do that would take three months and not yeah. 20 years, that would cost $2 million and not $2 billion. Right. Um, if I could get those studies funded, I could get find researchers to do them because researchers tend to go where the money is. Sure. You know can make a difference. It wouldn't take necessarily 20 years, but the point and sort of my crusade for the next, as long as I can afford to keep doing it, right. which is living in Manhattan, <laughs> not that long, but my, my I, you know, it's, can I get people at the NIH, an unbiased source of funding, to take this seriously so they'll fund the kind of studies, real scientific studies, well-controlled studies, right. that'll tell you, do you get fat because you eat too much or do you get fat because of the carbohydrates? Mm. When you lose weight, do you lose weight because you change your energy balance or do you lose weight because you lower your insulin levels to the carbohydrates? They're simple questions. They can be answered. And they, yeah, writing congressmen, writing your doctors, um, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm pushing want people to buy my book, but, you know, if... If, if people ordered my book and had it shipped to the ADA, yeah. so that suddenly, you know, 50 books arrive. You don't day. think they've seen it? <laughs> <laughs> I think they've seen it, but I'd like it to be, you know, pile up on their doorstep every day. You know, the American Heart Association. Could oh, yeah, they definitely do. This whole bad fat brothers. Have you heard that with no, the sad and trans? And no. it's terrible. It's like a little cartoon character. I did a podcast of last year on this where they, they actually have a cartoon character named Sat for saturated fat and trans for trans fat. And they're talking about, you know, eating all these foods that supposedly contain them in it and, you know, will kill your heart. And it's just awful. I was, I was at this USC <laughs> seminar 
And one of the guests they had, they had a the local councilman for this part of Los Angeles. USC is University of Southern California. Right. Local councilman sent one of his junior aides to sit in on the conference for an hour, make their presence focus. These people are trying to deal with childhood obesity, and there's a lot of obese, you know, Latinos, Hispanics in the neighborhood. And this young aide gets up for five minutes and thanks them for doing the research and then he tells them about all the good things that this councilman has done to combat childhood obesity and it was all about banning trans fats and I actually went outside afterwards and I stopped this poor young aide who wasn't there to be assaulted by some crazy journalist said look <laughs> if even if trans fats had some you know negative health effects it's not about obesity it's about Heart disease. Right. Panning trans fats has nothing to... But nobody at the conference told them that. Right. Nobody at the seminar, they didn't care. They weren't going to get in the way of somebody who might help channel funding into their research institute. Right. And they were like acting like they were confounded by it. Like it was some brilliant point. Yeah. Yeah. It's... (laughs) (laughs) And and therein is is what you fight. Yeah. I mean... And I keep saying, look, this is a, we, this is a science. It's mm-hmm. not a religion. It's not magic. It's yeah. not, everybody is not different, you know, and we all basically, our bodies work in all the same ways they can be understood. It's, you know, one of the lines that these people like to say is complicated problem. Yeah. It's not simple, Gary. It's not simple. It can't be that simple. And it's like lung cancer is a complex disease. Mm-hmm. The environmental cause of lung cancer is simple. Cigarettes. Don't smoke cigarettes. You won't get lung cancer except for like 5% of the, right. you know. This could be that simple. Mm. And if you don't study it, you'll never know. And, you know, that's that's the argument I'm trying to make, I hope. We'll see where we are. We could do this interview a year from now. And sure. How see how far I'm... along it's gone. <laughs> exactly. Again, it's uh, Gary Tobbs, the author of Good Calories, Bad Calories. Now, the paperback paperback version is due out September. Is that right? I think it's okay. September. And uh, we'll definitely uh, be looking for that. And then I, I assume if that one does well, the mass paperback will be out soon thereafter next year, maybe. We hope. Yeah, again, I don't. that was just speculative. I mean, I don't yeah. know if uh, how serious they are about that. Right. Again, it'll depend. You know, I'd like to see it, but I'd also, like I said, I'd like to write this other book just about obesity, a nice 150-page sure. polemic that's you know not only easy to read but fun to read. Sure, and, and I definitely think that there's uh, a lot of craving for that kind of just quick, yeah. I can read it you know, and, and be done with it, and, and, and it will make a difference. This is one of my favorite. I was interviewing this British epidemiologist. And I said, this was a couple of years ago, and I started talking about my book. He's a very famous guy. And I said, oh, Dabs, you're not going to spend another 6,000 words, are you, telling us about how we're all idiots? You know, can't you just write a short little paper that just gives the results? <laughs> and it's like, you know, the point is, that's what I got to do. That's yeah. what I have to do. Yeah. I have to sit down. I have to write a five-page you know, journal article. Right. That presents the arguments, and maybe you know they'll that they'll read. Maybe. Mm-hmm. So. Well, as a as a writer, you know you write pretty long articles too. I mean, what was it the the one you wrote in two thousand three was how many words? Yeah, yeah about eight thousand words. Yeah, I <laughs> that, was, that was a small book there. So. None, of, none of this stuff comes easily. You know, yeah. it's not like there are people who for whom writing is easy. I'm not yeah. one of them. Researching is easy for yeah. me, but writing. But the actual is, writing is laborious. It's laborious, and it's I mean, Sisyphus is your role model. Yeah. You just wake up in the morning and push the rock up the hill, and then you go to sleep and you wake up the next morning and you push, push the rock up the hill. And, you know. um, anyway, well, 
Jimmy, thank you. Well, thank you, Gary. It's been a pleasure, and I, I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to uh, to meet with me and my listeners. Uh, a lot of them consider you a hero, and uh, you certainly have uh, put in the effort, the research, and we are very thankful for your contribution. Well, I'm thankful that that's, you know, it's a strange position to be in, but I, I'm grateful that you guys, that you care. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much. Disc of Light.